This podcast may contain explicit language. There's no way to convey the emotion. There's no way that you can ex- describe the sound or the smells or anything. And, you know, I've, I've tried it myself. And it's not that people don't want to listen or that they don't want to hear it. It's just that they don't have any, there's no context. So there's no way to describe it. The best way to do something like that is a movie. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we wish you an honorable Veterans Day as we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to possibly the best war movie ever made, Saving Private Ryan, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks, Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Adam Goldberg, Barry Pepper, Matt Damon, and Vin Diesel. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we are covering our second animated movie of the show for its 20th anniversary this year, Shrek, starring... Mike Myers, Cameron Diaz, Eddie Murphy, and John Lithgow. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can also email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, did you know that our website has the full notes for every episode of the show, as well as the master list of movies we've created so far? There are links in the episode descriptions of every episode to direct you right there. Check them out. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. With that, we welcome a new guest to the show, as advertised, my brother-in-law and last member of our immediate family to make an appearance on the show, former Marine and three-tour veteran of Iraq, Keith Techmeyer. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for your service, sir. Keith, with all new guests to the show, we would like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. So so first, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Well, like you said, I'm a Iraq veteran, which uh, means that I've seen some some combat and uh, kind of in a way feel myself lucky that uh, I'm one of the Iraq veterans that, that did see combat because if, if you want to think about it that way, because a lot don't. And I think that kind of gave me a unique perspective into into a certain aspect of, of life and something that this movie kind of covers to a degree. And I like movies for that reason is because it uh, – like I think a lot of the answers that you've gotten is movies tell a story and how good of a job they do with telling that story and how they try to elicit emotions through the storytelling, through the, the, the story itself, through the acting, through the cinematography, whatever. And when you have certain life experiences that are really difficult to replicate, but you want somebody else to, to feel a certain emotion, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to do. And I think that a good movie can do that. It has an idea in mind of what it's going to do, and then it tries to 
get you to feel that way. I think any any successful movie does that. Well, we talk a lot about escapism for movies, but I guess you raised another important point that it has the ability of art to apply the human experience uh, in a way that most people aren't able to experience it themselves. Do you remember the famous uh, Harold Ramis quote about movies? I think he's probably had several, so I'm not sure which one specifically. This one is that you end up making three movies every time you make one. There's the movie you intend to make, the movie you actually make, and then the movie that people see. So when when you write something and you get something together and you're 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 you have an idea and you're trying to get it out and uh, then you get into actually making it and you discover where the shortcomings are, what you can do and what you can't do and how you can try to get something to manifest that you have pictured in your mind or written on the page. And but then you also got to get other people to do that. Other people can't get in your head and no matter how good a director is make something manifest. You can't just snap your fingers and make it appear. You get what you get. And then you're done making the thing, and you're not watching it when you're making it. You're just making it. So then you make it, you put it out, and then people see it. And then what people see might not be what you intended for them to see. And I think that's part of the fun is is if something is good, then... uh, I think it has that understanding as it's as it's going into it. Yeah, there is a gap between when the creator hands over his creation to the audience and it becomes theirs. I think in a lot of ways, uh, knowing you and kind of the, the movies that you're attached to, in some ways, uh, I don't know if I would be justified in calling you a nerd, but you have some nerdy tendencies. Certainly with something like Star Wars that I know you're very passionate about, it's become more of a creation of the fan base at this point than it was originally conceived of by George Lucas. Yeah. So that obviously leads into the next question we normally ask. What is your favorite movie and why? And I think that another frequent answer is, I think it changes. It changes and it changes a lot. I have my favorites and my regulars that I go to or, uh, Another great example is ones that I'll just keep going back to the same time every year, my seasonal movies. And um, I, I think that I would have to pick one of those. For, for the longest time, my favorite movie was Ghostbusters. And uh, I, it, it might still be. might still be. I don't, I don't know. You mean the Ghostbusters from like 2017 with all the females in it? Obviously. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think that's the only one that anybody's seen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Finally, yeah. last question we always ask, what makes a good movie to you? I think a movie that understands what it's doing and where it's coming from as it's doing it, it almost like it's not to anthropom- uh, anthropomorphize a, a movie, but one that's, that's self-aware. And it doesn't matter what kind of a movie it is, but if it's if it's genuine in its entirety, if the people that are working on the movie and the people that are doing all of the uh, the, the background effects and the cameras and all of that genuinely believe in what they're doing and are, are giving it their all, if everybody is giving it their all, then uh, it, it's probably going to be a good movie. I think a lot of the reason why AAA blockbusters and 
and things that are just meant to get pumped out for the summer to get everybody to go to the theater really quick, and then the movie disappears into the ether, is just because it's, all right, let's just pump something out so we can make a bunch of money, get it over with, and then move on to the next thing so we can go make a bunch more money. Kind of like the the Transformer movies. I, I don't think anybody at any point in time while making that movie ever thought, yeah, this is good. I, I like this. I'm having a good time. The script is awesome. The actors are fantastic. And I think that that that's why when movies are good, they're usually universally acclaimed. There's, there's some that have a cult following or ah, I don't care for this or oh, I didn't like that. But usually when something's good, it's good. And um, I, I think that uh, I, I keep going back. One of my favorite books is Catcher in the Rye. And the reason why I like that book is because the book has one statement, I think, and it's that human beings can smell when something is phony. So when, when at any point in time a movie phones it in with bad special effects, or bad acting, or a bad filler, then I, th- I think people can smell that from a mile away. Not, not always, because they made that Star Trek movie in 2009, and everybody thought it was amazing, and then they went to make more. So sometimes people are wrong, and that's, that's a, a great instance. But uh, I, th- I think that's what a good movie is for me. One that's one that's self-aware. All right, so let's start here. Keith, you've often been critical, at least when we've discussed this off-air, of uh, war movies that you don't find to be accurate to your own experiences. Where does Saving Private Ryan fall on that scale for you as far as quality? It's about as far up there as you can get. And I, I think that one of the things that can happen with a war movie and one of the reasons why this one did well is that you you can tell when something is phoned in, when they don't know how to express something, so they just they just do it, and then they're like, well, nobody's going to know the difference. And this, this is up there. I mean, it, unless we're going to get to it later, I can tell you why this is up there. Go ahead. This, this kind of... It, it conveys that, that experience. And to me, this is essentially what the experience is. It's a massive amount of violence being exacted in one direction, both directions, and the emotions that are elicited by one party or another. And that's that's the hard thing to portray. And it's not just a war movie, but it's, it's, it's a gunfight in a movie or... It's an explosion or anything along those lines where having experienced that, you, you know what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it smells like, and then how everybody is going to react. And when you watch that movie, it feels genuine when the people are trying to duck and weave or it looks like they are legitimately scared they're legitimately confused and have no idea what's going on. But obviously they're not. They're actors. They're acting. Nothing's actually happening. Yeah, I think this movie is at its best when it's dealing with a lot of the little emotions that are happening with, under great stress and tension that's obviously caused by the events going on around them. Yeah. yeah and that's another big thing is, is confusion. A lot of people think that this is the first 
it, it isn't, but a lot of people think that this is the first very serious war movie because it's not a romantic and it shows a violence in a very real way as opposed to in the past, in the 60s and 70s, there was more screen time given to World War II than actual World War II, I think. Every week a new one was coming out. And you'll have some, some guy from Brooklyn and he's walking through the field with his rifle and all of a sudden he gets shot. And the typical movie trope where he drops his rifle and goes like this. And you can kind of see the edge of the ketchup packet sticking up right here. And he goes, ah, and he turns away. And there's like a little spot of blood. And he falls to the ground. And uh, he cries out for his mother, like, grasping at the air, and then just slowly fades away. Guns don't do that. And I think that Saving Private Ryan showed people that in a way that they really hadn't seen it before, at least in a mainstream way. I'm not going to say that there was never a movie made before this that didn't do a good job at showing violence and the consequences of violence. Not not as in violence is bad, but when somebody pulls the trigger on a firearm and a round hits somebody, what that does. This is the first that, that really showed it in a seriously mainstream way that almost everybody in this country has seen. I know that a lot of Credit usually is given to both this movie and another movie from the same year, The Thin Red Line, as portraying movies in the way that you're describing. Kind of this anti-real or uh, romanticism, I think was the word you used. Kind of against what The Great Escape was. While a good movie, a lot darker, more gritty, more realistic, and actually identifying some of the battle sequences in a way that wasn't heroic. And... Dad, you have said, I think previously on the show before, that certain periods of American culture can be defined by the most recent Spielberg classic. Where does that this movie fit into that? I think to a large extent, this film actually places the history of World War II within the next generation. It kind of defines what World War II was and what was involved. Um, I remember watching Tom Hanks promote the film on Letterman, and uh, Letterman says, well, what, what would you say is the principle of the movie? We're all pussies compared to these guys. And that was the quote. But I think it means something because, you know, I grew up being the last year of the baby boom. When we played... In the play Cowboys and Indians, we played Army, and we always were fighting the Germans when I was a kid. I had a whole group of friends. I made all the models. I did the, the Sherman tank. I made all the, the World War II ships, you know, the Missouri, the Arizona, the Washington. I had them all, right? And so there was a romantic aspect of this for my generation. I think... This film defined it more and said the romance is not in the war, but the cause that's being fought. Yeah, I think this brings home a lot of the uh, consequence or I guess maybe stakes in a way that we hadn't seen up to this point. I remember specifically that this movie came out, I believe I was in third grade. 
And I don't really remember a whole lot of what was going on around the time of the release. I, I don't remember it in the same way that we've had conversations with like a friend of ours who uh, describes seeing it with other veterans lining the block to try and see this in like the premiere weekend. And this was released in the summer and th- there are a lot of stories surrounding when it was released, but I, I don't have any recollection of that. I was too young. What I do remember is in third grade, going to a parochial school that you identified specifically, because I came home and told you, my teacher said, you should never watch R-rated movies. Well, that would really limit the amount of movies that I see in this day and age, but even so. You said specifically, I think there can be exceptions made in certain cases, and you pointed to this film specifically to at least give me a better understanding. I don't think I would have understood it as well as I do now, what was going on at age eight or have an appreciation or maturity to understand the consequences of war. But sometimes you just get the raw nature of what's going on on screen. So one of our favorite questions then is, you know, what, or what is your relationship to this movie? That's mine. Either of you, what is your relationship to this movie and kind of where you first had your uh, encounter with it? Well, Kind of going off of what Dana said, and I'll, I'll backpedal here a little bit, is um, I'm, I'm still a young guy, but when I was a kid, all the World War II veterans, for the most part, were still around, and a lot of them, they were still working. My grandpa was still working. My school principal was a World War II veteran. These weren't all old, white-haired guys that were basically just consigned to the retirement homes and the the houses in the neighborhood that uh, you wouldn't go chase your ball into if, uh, if it got kicked over there. These guys were still an active part of every community and every business across the, the country. And around the time that this movie came out, certain group of people I don't really remember or know who made the observation that that generation was quickly starting to disappear. And there's another thing that happened at the same time that this movie was going on involving Tom Hanks. The National World War II monument had not been built. He was using this movie as a platform to try to advertise the fact that they were trying to build this monument and also bringing awareness to that generation because they, when they got back, most of them from World War II, they didn't, they didn't talk about it. You went home, you got on with your life, and for the most part, you kept your mouth shut. So you went to the local VFW meeting and hung out with your, your friends or you had a reunion. But their kids never grew up hearing anything about this. The grandkids grew up hearing nothing about World War II. And this movie was going to be the thing that was like, no, this, this is not a Hollywood production. This is as close as we can bring you, and we want to hit you guys hard in a time when you need to realize what these people went through before they're gone, because they're going, I think at the time that he said, because he had commercials on TV and everything, I think it was a thousand veterans a week or something. It was, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember the commercial all that well. Around that exact same time, we got in my in my hometown we got a walmart and i remember walking in and it was the very first display that they ever put up 
and it covered the entire entrance and there was a, a walkway you had to go underneath it and then a big cutout of tom hanks and then all this memorabilia and none of it had anything to do with band of brothers everybody just knew that he was going to be in band of brothers and that the movie was happening it was all about the national world war ii memorial and he wanted to use one to kind of bolster the other like hey go see the movie so you have a better understanding and then maybe you might think about giving some money towards the memorial because they were raising funds for it it wasn't automatically going to happen the government wasn't going to chuck a bunch of money into it it was all fundraised and then the other way too world war ii happened we're putting up a, a memorial and also you might want to go see this movie as as a reminder so that's that's kind of what it was for me is it was when when i did eventually see it it wasn't a campy 1960s world war ii saga and uh it was the first one that they were really gonna take seriously and in the 80s and the 90s they didn't really make world war ii movies not very many yeah because i went and looked there are there's a big gap between basically a bridge too far in this movie yeah Dad, what was your experience? Well, it's too faceted. The first uh, portion I would note is is that I saw this movie alone during a uh, rather raw emotional period in my life and really had a very difficult time with the film and digesting it and the impact and the significance of it and you know, at a point where I was questioning so much of what I thought and believed and understood and things I trusted and relied on. And adding this to the hopper, it, it stirred a lot of emotions. And I'll admit afterwards, I think I sobbed for about an hour after I got out of the film. To this day, the opening scene and the closing 15 minutes, I can't watch without having a box of Kleenex because it still has such emotion for me. The other aspect is, is this film did what the veterans could not. They couldn't tell their families what they experienced because they could never in words convey the emotions, the feelings, the horror, the relationships with the other soldiers they fought with, the fear, the beliefs they carried and why they did the things they did. And this film, you know, as you're watching, you're and everybody who had family who fought in World War II, they're Ryan's family standing in the cemetery watching him react to being there again, that's the families of all the veterans getting a glimpse of this. And I have stories. For example, Allison's godfather, his uh, father-in-law was in World War II. And he never talked about World War II at all, ever. But he asked the family if they would take him. And he took, they, they took him and he watched the film. And he had tears rolling down his cheeks and never said a word. Afterwards, they went out for, I think, for like pie or something. And 
Well, Dad, was it? How was it? He just said, "Yeah, that's the way it was." That was all he said. About uh, six or eight weeks later, he died. And when they were going through his closet, they found a box. And in the box, they found stuff. And he was 101st Airborne. And he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he received a Silver Star and a Purple Heart. And no one had any clue that he was there, that he fought there, that he had been wounded in combat, that he had any awards or recognition. He just buried it. And this was the only chance he had to give his family an idea of what he went through. Yeah, very much so. Having the chance to get to know so many World War II veterans, get the chance to talk to them, is they often have the same answer, is that when they came back, everybody was in the war. And even those that had stayed behind, they were like, oh, yeah, well, I had to ration my gasoline. You don't know what that was like. So everybody kind of just came home and clammed up. They didn't talk about it. They just went on with their lives. They, they, tried, to, they tried to move on because that's kind of what was expected. And then when they did go get a job, it, it's not like it is now where you move on and you go get a job and you carry on with your life and you're the only one that had this experience when they went back to the foundry or they went back to the mill or they went back wherever they were going, they were surrounded by their peers. Like almost everybody there was in it. So then it's, well, what, what needs to be said? And then you get older and you have kids and what, at what point in time do you sit down and, and, and tell your kids? And what, what you said earlier is there's no way to convey the emotion, there's no way that you can ex- describe the sound or the smells or anything. And, you know, I've, I've tried it myself. And it's not that people don't want to listen or that they don't want to hear it. It's just that they don't have any, there's no context. So there's no way to describe it. The best way to do something like that is a movie. It has a transporting effect that way, absolutely. But before we get too much further, let's get into the background of this movie. Dad, do we have our plot summary? I do. Captain John Miller, Tom Hanks, takes his men behind enemy lines to find Private James Ryan, whose three brothers have been killed in combat. Surrounded by brutal realities of war, each man questions their mission and the necessity of saving one man while putting the rest in danger. As peril after peril continues around them, all of them must determine their own desires to fulfill their mission. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Tom Hanks as Captain John H. Miller. Edward Burns as Private First Class, Richard Ryben. Matt Damon as Private First Class, James Francis Ryan. Harrison Young as Elderly James Ryan. Tom Sizemore as Technical Sergeant Mike Horvath. Jeremy Davies as Corporal Timothy Upham. Vin Diesel as Private First Class, Adrian Caparzo. Adam Goldberg as Private Stanley Fish Mellish. Barry Pepper as Private Daniel Jackson. Giovanni Rabisi as T4 Medic, Erwin Wade. Dennis Farina as Lieutenant Colonel Walter Anderson. Ted Danson as Captain Fred Hamill. Harv Presnell as General George Marshall. 
Brian Cranston as War Department Colonel, David Wall as War Department Captain, Nathan Fillion as Minnesota Ryan, Private James Frederick Ryan, Paul Giamatti as Sergeant William Hill. Recognition for this movie, the film was nominated for 11 Academy Awards at the 71st Annual Ceremony, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Tom Hanks, Best Original Screenplay. The film won five of these, including Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Film Editing, and Best Director for Spielberg, his second win in that category. In a controversial upset, the film lost the Best Picture Award to Shakespeare in Love, joining a small number to have won the Best Director Award without also winning Best Picture. The Academy's decision not to award the film with the Best Picture Oscar has resulted in much criticism in recent years, with many considering it as one of the biggest snubs in the ceremony's history. In a poll in 2015, Academy members indicated that, given a second chance, they would award the Oscar for Best Picture to Saving Private Ryan. As of 2021, it is only one of three films to ever win the PGA, DGA, Golden Globe, and Best Director Oscar while not winning Best Picture at the Academy Awards, with the others being Brokeback Mountain and La La Land. Saving Private Ryan has been frequently lauded as an influential work in the war film genre and is credited with contributing to a resurgence in America's interest in World War II. Old and new films, video games, and novels about the war enjoyed renewed popularity after its release. The film's use of desaturated colors, handheld cameras, and tight angles has profoundly influenced subsequent films and video games. The American Film Institute has included Saving Private Ryan in many of its lists, including ranking it as the 71st greatest American movie in AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies, the 10th anniversary edition from 2007, as well as the 45th most thrilling film in AFI's 100 Years 100 Thrills, the 10th most inspiring in AFI's 100 Years 100 Cheers, and the 8th best epic film in AFI's 10 of Top 10. Saving Private Ryan was voted as the greatest war film in a 2008 Channel 4 poll of the 100 greatest war films. In a reader's poll for Rolling Stone, it was voted as the 18th best film of the 1990s. Empire named the film as the 39th greatest film of all time. Saving Private Ryan has also received critical acclaim for its realistic portrayal of World War II combat. In particular, the sequence depicting the Omaha Beach landings was named the best battle scene of all time by Empire Magazine and was ranked number one on TV Guide's list of the 50 greatest movie moments. Filmmaker Robert Altman later wrote a letter to Steven Spielberg stating, Private Ryan was awesome, best I've seen. In 2014, the film was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? Steven Spielberg claimed that he considered the film a passion project as a gift to his aging father, a World War II veteran. He further claimed that he made the picture against his commercial instincts, believing there would not be a wide audience for a World War II movie with graphic violence, and was pleasantly surprised when it became a blockbuster hit. Did you know? Steven Spielberg requested that no one gain admittance to the movie once it had already begun, just as Alfred Hitchcock did during the release of Psycho. Did you know? Steven Spielberg personally held and operated the camera for many shots during the Omaha Beach Battle. Did you know? Steven Spielberg cast Matt Damon as Private Ryan because he wanted an unknown actor with an all-American look. He did not know Damon would win an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting the year before and become an overnight star before the film was released. Did you know? The Omaha Beach scene cost $11 million to shoot and involved up to 1,000 extras, 
some of whom were members of the Irish Army Reserve. Of those extras, 20 to 30 of them were amputees designed with issued prosthetic limbs to play soldiers who had their limbs blown off. Did you know? All the principal actors, except for Matt Damon, underwent several days of grueling army training. Damon was spared so that the other actors would resent him and would convey that feeling in their performances. Did you know? When the camera shakes during explosions, Steven Spielberg used drills attached to the side of the camera, which were turned on when required. While shooting with this effect, the crew's photographer let Spielberg know that there was a shaker lens for those cameras. Spielberg said in an interview that he had thought he had actually invented a great new technique. All right, let's take a quick break before we move on with the categories. We'll be right back. All right, thank you for rejoining us. So, gentlemen, where we left off, what is this movie about, or how would you elevator pitch it? The meaning of war and the sacrifice for the greater good. Yeah, my elevator pitch is a little bit more of the premise. A small platoon goes on a rescue mission to find the last surviving member of a small Iowa family. I mean, that that just kind of is more of a summary portion of it than anything else of the wide-ranging themes, but... That's why we have multiple opinions on this. What'd you have down, Keith? A movie about trying to find this private Ryan who's lost in 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 the abyss. Okay. All right. So then, best performance. I'd like to say this is probably a universal choice, but I'm not sure. I think you could go in a couple of different directions. Dad, let's start with you. Tom Hanks. That's also I, who I had. Hanks is perfect for the role. He was was compassionate, stern, approachable, aloof. I mean, he had so many different conflicting emotions and presentations that he really conveyed what you would picture a commanding officer who was well thought of or regarded by his men as being. There was surprisingly another movie I kept thinking about that he has a very similar performance and was recently lauded as much as I think this movie came out about 10 years ago. But his performance seems very similar to how he did Captain Phillips. There's a leadership, there's a quiet, reserved nature there's an emotional and immense stress that he's under. And that scene where he breaks down and just sobs, but he's constantly looking over his shoulder because he doesn't want to let his guys see that vulnerability, that he's also scared, that he's also having to make tough choices and he feels the weight and consequences of those because ultimately they need to respect that he's made those decisions regardless. There are just those little nuances, those little moments that Spielberg and Hanks let you in on that I thought were some of the best parts of this movie. Keith, who did you have down? I had Tom Hanks. So uh, one, two, three. Okay. Yeah. Because I, because I believed him. Sometimes when you're put in, in command or you're put in charge, it isn't necessarily because that's because you're the, the most competent or the best choice or because you want it. Command just sort of happens. And even if you don't know what you're doing, you have to convey the, 
the idea that you do and nothing else. You just got to stay as stoic as you can and try to help push people in, in the right direction. And then when you're faced with things, then you just kind of sort of have to shut the brain down and, and, and forego all emotion and try to use as much logic and reason in the chaos as you can to make what at the time seems like the best decision. When he does that in this movie, that's kind of how I feel, is that he doesn't want to be in the army, but he has to be, so he's damn right he's going to do it. He's, he's not a natural-born battle commander, born company officer, or anything along those lines. But he was put in that position because he, he has that, that ability, is regardless of how he feels or he thinks or how scared he might be or how insecure or unsure he might be, he can still get people to do what he needs them to do. And that's a really difficult thing. And you can see that uh, uh, in a little bit. It kind of alludes to that like when he's trying to take the, the top off of his canteen and his hands are shaking. He's, he's terrified the entire time. But nobody's going to know that. He's not going to. And even if they do, he's still, you know, he has a right amount of poise and he's, he's moving forward. So his guys are going to go with him. Yeah, and they clearly have a admiration for him as their leader, and I think they've mentioned it uh, in multiple occasions during that. Even though times occasionally become testy and they do question his command at several points in the film, I, I guess maybe this is a question better reserved for remaining questions. But I'm curious to see what you both saw in it because I have my own thoughts on it but I'm not really sure that I believe in what I came up with. Why do you think they focus so much on his handshaking and what does that exactly mean in the context of this movie? I think that they wanted to point out that he was terrified, but for somebody that's never had that experience, you got to put something in there to show people that don't recognize that emotion that it's there. And when I was a kid and I saw that, that's that's how I knew. Okay. I, I guess it's not as blatant for me. Like, that's an obvious point, but that's about where I, I rounded to. It's a physical representation of his emotional state. It was the anti-John Wayne. John Wayne never showed any emotion. He was stoic. And so, you know, that was your commander, he just had no feeling. He just did the job. He didn't have human emotions. Hanks's portrayal by the handshaking shows that he consciously led, but he was burying so much emotion that it would just come out and manifest in some sort of manner that showed you that he was still human. Okay. I didn't know if I was necessarily on the right track with that, and so thank you for humoring me. Let's move to best secondary performance. For me, it's Steven Spielberg. Spielberg has defined how we watch monster movies, how we've watched sci-fi movies, how we've watched the, or what we think about the Holocaust, and now what we think about World War II and combat action films. Every piece of film that has been produced, and there are a lot of war films or war TV shows or 
combat scenes or gunfights, a lot of this comes after this movie. And in many ways, I see this as being the thing that everybody looks back to. The The amount of references I saw from, uh, I think, what was it? Mel Gibson asked advice from Spielberg when he would, I think this was before Mel Gibson was basically blacklisted by every Jew in Hollywood. But still, we were soldiers, I think. He asked him for advice. I know Christopher Nolan tried to talk to him for his work on Dunkirk. And you want to go through a bunch of these different scenarios all of them look up to Steven for basically creating what the modern war film looks like. And you could say that with a lot of different genres. This is another one of them. I think he deserves the credit as eventually, essentially did get with winning best director. Dad, who was your best secondary? I, I did not go with Spielberg and I'll get to that later. I had a tie because it's two different performers that I really enjoyed during this film that one, unfortunately, <laughs> had kind of a checkered history afterwards. Um, I had both Tom Sizemore and Barry Pepper. I thought Barry Pepper's portrayal of the uh, very religious sniper to be both believable and both heroic and sympathetic all at the same time. Tom Sizemore just, he's the guy that the salty sergeant that you could believe is right there at the assistance or at the right elbow of a commanding officer and helping to lead his uh, troops in combat. Unfortunately, uh, I think we could have had a lot more great roles from Tom Sizemore if he could have kept his, uh, personal demons under control. He's still out there performing, but I think that this was probably his pinnacle and could have probably set him up to do a lot of great things, but for his substance abuse and criminal problems. But I, I thought both of them did uh, exceptional jobs. Just for the sake of context, you do mention his substance abuse issues. I do want to note that Steven Spielberg made a contract with him that he had to have daily drug testing while doing the film and said that if any of it was violated or he was ever positive, that he would actually be recast and they would reshoot all of his scenes. He had to remain clean, and he was throughout the duration of this filming, but it just goes to show that he already had pre-existing problems. But this is a guy that kind of fit that role. He also has a very similar kind of sidekick or, I guess, second lieutenant role in another uh, acclaimed 90s movie, Heat, that uh, I think we'll also eventually be discussing on the show. Keith, who did you have yours as your best secondary? I had, I had Tom Sizemore on there as well. That's, that's the thing about this movie is there was the movie when I saw it when, uh, when it came out. And then I can view it now and see it differently. And when I view it now, I think that Tom Hanks's character, when he was given a mission and he was going to go carry it out, he got his orders and he's like, okay. And during the entirety of the time, he cared about the mission and he wanted to, to push forward. He's, he's an officer and he's going to be an officer. Meanwhile, Tom Sizemore is the platoon sergeant. He, he's sick to death of all of this, too. And he's only slightly more in the loop of everything that is going on than the rest of, uh, than the, rest of the Joes. 
So he's going along with it, but he's about as equally excited about the mission and the orders and the things that they're doing as the rest of the guys, which is not at all. But he's going to make sure that they go through with it and they do it. Now, the, the movie kind of camps up a lot of the the arguing and the mutiny a little bit, a lot. Like, would any of that ever have happened? No, not at all. None of those guys would have even have thought of that sort of level of backtalk. That wouldn't have happened at all. But if it had have, then Tom Sizemore would have stepped into the role that he had, where he was basically the tough, gruff guy that had been through a lot with his captain. And even though the mission in there, in, in, in his mind, was idiotic, he was going to make sure that the guys were doing what they were supposed to do. Tom Hanks goes forward with the compass and says, follow me. He stands all the way in the back to actually make sure that they're following him, whether they want to or not. And that's it's a good combination that you sort of need. All right, let's move to most charismatic. Dad, you probably have a unique one for this one. I'm I just can see it in your eyes. It's Spielberg. Spielberg ultimately lifted this to the pinnacle of war films. And he made himself by his directing something everybody wanted to uh, attain to. Everything about how they did films of this genre they wanted to follow him. He was the leader and became the leader for at least a generation of how to do these films. And that to me is charismatic because everybody wanted to follow him because he was able to elevate the film to such levels. Keith, who did you have down? I actually, I did again have the same response because uh, different people saw different things. And then not just military movies, but anybody that wanted to make an action movie. Nobody nobody had a reaction to a movie quite like they did for that one, when, when nobody would stop talking about it for a couple of years. Or you, you were going to go see an action movie, and you thought, is it going to be as good as Saving Private Ryan? Like, it it set a lot of, a lot of standards. All right. I went with... Uh... Jeremy Davies, and that would be, uh, I can't remember his class, but uh, Upham, particularly because I identify most with that character. If I were ever thrust into that position, that would be me. I know it just offhand. I'd be the guy crying in the corner who wouldn't understand what the hell everybody was talking about with FUBAR, but would eventually pick up on it, who was supposedly the good sold one, but eventually kind of the, the scales come off your eyes, and by the end of the film, you're just as cynical as everybody else. And thrust into that position, I thought he came as the most relatable character and the one through which I almost saw the rest of the movie. Even though, yes, Hanks gets the majority of the screen time, it's really the entrance point for somebody who's not part of combat that you'd enter it through somebody who is not up to the task until probably the end of the movie. Interesting choice. It makes some sense. It does. Let's go to best scene then. I only have a few down for basically what's close to what, a two hour, 45 minute, three hour movie. There are a lot of really long scenes. 
I would almost classify the opening scene, not in the uh, cemetery, but uh, the D-Day scene as just one scene by itself, even though you have so much going on and that scene alone is probably like half an hour or 40 minutes. But I, I put that one on here just by itself because I think you have to take it in its totality. The second one I had down was We Don't Take Children, three, The Dog Tag Search, four, The Machine Gun Nest. Again, that's a larger encompassing scene. You could probably dissect that into a couple of different ones, but I, I pushed it at its its full limit on that one. Ramel, so basically the gunfight, the ending battle, and then Earn This, which I took to be the ending for Tom Hanks or Captain Miller back then flashing forward into the modern day. So are there particular moments that I missed? I particularly like the whole war department scene with all the letters and everything going out of the casualties and then people discovering it and realizing that this is so formulaic. These people were doing tons of these letters every day and it it could very well have gotten to a point of being so routine that somebody noticed something and made it into more of a human element and then it going up the chain, ultimately getting to uh, General Marshall. Keith, did I miss anything? I don't know whether or not you covered it, but it's a big scene. It's the one, it, what to me looked like a a radar site, when they were trying to make the decision of whether they're justified in shooting their German prisoner or letting him go. I kind of grouped that together with the machine gun nest scene, just generally, just because there are a lot of different parts. And I I think you could break that one up because there's the Tom Hanks sobbing part of it. There's the demise of the medic. Irwin Wade. There's the conversation before they ever go to the machine gun nest. There's the actual cutaway where up in, uh, well, I guess you you only get the flashes of seeing what Upham's reaction to all of the violence that's going on in front of him. And then it's the, the prisoner, as you mentioned in that. So I, I would say that's all one thing, even though, like I said, you can break that down into individual pieces just because I think that all has to do with one thing. The argument extends to why can't we go around them because we shouldn't leave this for somebody else to get ambushed. Then it's the battle or ex- the, I don't know, excursion. I, what, I, I'm not sure what a great word for it is. Then the prisoner, then Hanks, then all of these other pieces because they add up to one big hole of a sequence for me. And actually, I thought that the opening sequence, present day, and the ending sequence, present day, are really the same scene, but with a flashback in the middle. I I think you could say that, because I, I could make the argument that they're bookends, sure. But I think the weight is bigger on the back end to me, coupled with him standing there looking over Captain Miller. Because at the beginning, you're kind of confused as to what's going on. And then it's only in the reveal at the end that I think it carries the additional weight. Maybe in a rewatch sense that that's there, but I I just don't get the same 
gravitas, if, if you understand. But, but that's the whole point. That's the whole thing that Spielberg was doing as a reveal to the family. Because on the front end, you're the family sitting there and you think this is just, oh, dad's going to go visit the cemetery. And, oh, he's going to have a few memories and we'll talk about some of and then he breaks down and falls sobbing. And they're like, oh, what's going on? We don't understand. And at the end, his behavior, and they're starting to really understand what the emotional impact was for him. And so I don't see him as two different aspects. I think that it, I think that the reveal, the middle of the film, is what is impacting the family standing watching it, which is us, the family, the people who did not live this life, trying to understand it. Okay, so then what would you say is the best scene? Well, I have never, in all of the years I've watched combat films and studied and everything, that opening scene of the landing on Omaha Beach... I, I don't know if you could ever replicate anything as realistic and as powerful as that. I don't know how any human could have lived through that and not had their entire life and perception of life changed forever. Because every day you got through that, you were, you were going to almost have survivor's guilt as to why you survived and the guy next to you got it. I think that's part of the reason that there was a 800 hotline set up after the debut of this film for veterans who had a certain level of PTSD from seeing it. Keith, what to you was the best scene? Again, it's going to be the same answer and it's, it's the beach scene. And to me, I kind of break it into two. Now, obviously the, the beach that they use was a lot smaller than the actual beach. The, the the time that they kind of allude to is how long they were on the beach before they hit the edge of it isn't even, like it took 10, 15, 20 times longer than the beach was five times as long as it's shown in the film. But to me with the beach scene is getting off of the landing craft and then getting to the end of the beach and then as soon as they plop down and they're wondering how they're going to breach through, once they finally actually got off the landing craft, got across the beach, and then lay down is when the battle actually started for them. Whether, whether or not you were even going to get to participate in the battle depended very much on whether you got shot or blown up on the way to the battle. That actually started at the point where they got to the concertina wire and they're trying to, to breach a way through, and they're calling for the Bangalore torpedoes. And, okay, what, what torpedoes? Did, did anybody make it that has torpedoes? If we got to this point, do we have what's required? Like, it, for them, it didn't even begin until they got to that point. So, for me, just the, the trying to breach, and then once they breached, being able to move up the line and then get to the top of the bunkers and then into the trench lines and actually begin the battle for them. The Germans started the battle obviously before they hit the beach, but for them, okay, we got up top. Now we can actually do something instead of just run in that direction. I would certainly say that 
I think most people would point to the opening sequence, the the D-Day scene as being the best, just for the amount that had to go into it, from all of the extras to all of the... It's so immersive in the opening, taking you into a completely different world. And just the fact that you're on the boat itself and you're just dropped into this situation with almost no context and no warning, and they take you right up into it, the belly of the beast per se. I think there's an obvious choice in that being the best, but I'll also highlight the final battle to me. I thought that was one of the best choreographed sequences that you have from a war movie within a very small situation, within that township going back and forth, the guys running around, just the tank rolling over the hill and it's going to basically topple into Ribum and Ryan and Miller, I thought was just magnificent because you all of a sudden this thing just crawls up over the hill and you know it's coming down over the top of them and just their crawl out of the hole to try and run through all of that. There are so many different little tracking shots within that scene that I thought were magnificent. Just great mastery of directorial work to be able to take care of all of that. And I thought it was a little bit more inventive than kind of the massive scale that you got from Omaha. Favorite scenes then. Dad, let's start with you. My favorite scene is the one that I find the most indelible, and that's the ending. The whole earn it. Because, I mean, every day that you have had some experience that's life-altering or life-threatening or whether you question why you should be here today, I think to some extent you have that, have you done anything? Have you accomplished anything? Have you earned it? And to me, that just, it, it says so much to me. I mean, I didn't go through combat, okay? But I feel feel that because, I mean, I, I should have died at birth. It was some heroic efforts by my doctors to keep me alive. And my mother always told me from the earliest memory I have how she prayed that if she if God let me live, she would make sure I did something important. And so from very little on, I've had this feeling of obligation. And I can honestly say there's probably not too many days that have gone by where I've not felt that, where I've had to sit and go, have I done enough to earn it? So that scene just says so much to me. And every time (laughs) I'm choking up now and just thinking about it, because you always question, you know, have I done enough? I had that one, but the the other one that I had, and they were both at the same level for me, so I'll talk about the other one, was the scene in which uh, Private Ryan was told about everything that happened. And his immediate reaction was that he wasn't going to leave. And he says that uh, I'm with the only brothers that, that I have left. Because he didn't, he didn't believe that he was better than anybody else or that he was deserving of a break simply because of what happened to him. He was with his guys, and especially at that time, anybody from your unit, if, if you guys found each other and you got together, 
I mean, there was there was a lot that went into getting a small band of 20 guys to find one another again. And you had no idea what was going on. With the 101st, those guys started training together in 1942. They had over two years together building all these friendships until they actually hit foreign soil. That was their first combat action was D-Day. And all of a sudden, all of your, your, your best friends that you've ever had in your entire life, you have no idea what's going on, where they are, what happens. You don't even know where you are. So he gets an out. He's like, you don't have to participate this anymore. We're, we're going to take you back. You're going to go back to England, and then we're going we're gonna to fly you home. And he says no, because that's not what he wants to know what's going on. He wants to be with his, his comrades, with his friends. He wants to, to do the thing that he was sent there to go do. Those guys weren't strangers to the fact that a lot of other units had been fighting since 1942, and they sat back and didn't participate in any of it. They stayed in the States or they sat in England and just did training while everybody else did actual combat. So when his chance came, he got his combat, and then he could opt out and then didn't. Yeah, that, that goes back into and, – and even then, after all of that, it goes then to – that ending scene where everything that he did, he still doesn't know whether or not it was enough. So I went with the machine gun nest. I just find there are so many ebbs and flows to that scene. I'll, I'll talk about Hank's breaking down. I, I thought that was incredibly effective for me. The fact that he is having this outpouring of, of pure emotion. And I thought he conveyed it in a way that, felt more realistic than most of this sobbing that we get in movies, which you can kind of tell is somewhat fake at times. To me, that seemed realistic of somebody just under immense stress and pressure, finally just having to let go. Or you want to talk about the fight between Sizemore and Ed Burns. You, are you going to shoot me because uh, I'm going to leave? No, I'm going to shoot you because I don't like you just trying to hold things together and keep everybody somehow moving forward. Or as I'm going to have on in a later question, the conversation between Upham and Steamboat Willie and, you know, is it right to have this guy and not keep him as a prisoner of war? Well, we can't take him with us. I mean, the, the amount of decision-making that goes into that for him ultimately to come back around at the end of the movie I think that bears additional weight on top of that in the character moving forward for Upham. I mean, they're just small little things all over the totality of that scene that I thought were some of the most interesting character developments through the course of the film. All right, so most indelible moments. Dad, you already nominated yours as being the end of the film. For me, this is a weird one, and I don't know why this always sticks in my head. But it's the climactic moments where Tom Hanks is sitting uh, next to the motorcycle and shooting at the tank. Anytime I think of this movie, I think of that sequence. And I don't know why. That's just somehow seared into my memory. But that's most indelible for me. Keith, what's your most indelible? I think it's the scene at the, the, the last battle when the tiger spots the, uh, the gun nest. And then drags the turret over, fires, 
And because there's a lot of buildup to that, that that's, you know, that's the Alamo, that's the sanctuary. And then you slowly watch it just get completely decimated because it drags it out to the point where, oh, crap, the tank is here. Oh, shit, the tank is turning. It's turned towards me. Oh, we got to run. And then, boom, they don't make it. Yeah, it has such a moment of finality to it. All right, uh, before we get too much further into the show, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right, before we get too much further, Dad, did we have anybody to remember this week? Yes, a couple. All right, yes, Camille Saviola, an American uh, actress, The Purple Rose of Cairo, Adam's Family Values, Star Trek, Deep Space. Nine. And Linda Carlson, actress. She was in the movie version of the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Murder One and Cause. I don't have much of a connection to either of these actresses, um, just personally, but uh, I think it said Linda Carlson was also on the Newhart Show. Is that the one that you've been currently watching? Or is it the Bob Newhart show you've been rewatching? No, I started with the Bob Newhart show, and I might, after I finish the Bob Newhart show, go and watch Newhart if I can find it, because, you know, I, I do, or I did like being the early 80s person that I was, bosom buddies with Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari, and Peter, uh, unfortunately, passed a couple or the last week or... 10 days or so ago. So. Yes, we remembered him on last week's episode. But yes. Either way, we uh, thank them for their work and contribution to the industry and honor them here with a moment of silence. Thank you. All right, gentlemen, let's get to best funniest lines. Keith, what's the first one you had down? I put down the one and... Once you get a little history of it, it's funny in a sick way. So the the troops that were manning that section of the line were an amalgamation of, of people from all over the place. They even had Koreans on that line. They had lots of Poles. They had Russian prisoners. They had everybody. So once they punch through defenses and they're up atop the hill and they're going through and they're just clearing the entire area, and these this group of guys, they jump out, and they throw their hands in the air, and they start walking towards the Americans, and they start screaming, I'm Polish, I'm Polish, I'm Polish. And uh, the two GIs are walking towards them going, what, what, can't hear you, can't hear you, and then blam, 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 starts shooting, kills the entire line of them. And one guy turns to the other and says, what were they saying? And he goes, look, I washed for supper. Yeah, that's some black humor there. All right, Dan, let's go to yours. All right. Uh, James Riot. Picture a girl who just took a nosedive from the ugly tree and hit every branch coming down. Sounds like something my dad would have said. The first one for me, Captain John Miller. Gripes go up, not down. You gripe to me, I gripe to my superior officer. Keith, I think you're up. Did you have another one? That one. 
That one. I like that one a lot because it's tough when it's a line. Then that means it's a singular line, not a conversation or anything, but just like a line. And that one I've heard repeated a lot of times, like a lot of times. And whoever it was that started it, they probably got it from that movie. Dad? Fuck Hitler. Fuck Hitler. Steamboat Willie. Uh, the next one I had down, I, I just liked the break here from early on in the movie that kind of gave it a little bit of extra oomph and power. So this is from General George C. Marshall. I have here a very old letter written to Mrs. Bixby in Boston. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the adjutant general of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons. Adjutant. Excuse me, adjutant general of Massachusetts, that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any words of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming, but I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost, and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, Abraham Lincoln. Good God, people do not write like that anymore. If you're really interested, I have an entire series of books of letters and uh, speeches that Lincoln gave. I mean, the guy taught himself to be such a phenomenal writer. But it's the thought pattern that goes behind that in professing in such like almost poetic terms the nature of duty, honor, pride, nationalism, patriotism. I mean, this could have been another example of the Gettysburg Address. And you drop it right into the middle of this film and it has everything to do with exactly what the premise is underlining for you. That's exactly it. Well, it's why the Gettysburg Address is considered by most to be the greatest American speech ever given. It's in the canon. It's one of maybe five to ten different documents and or written pieces of uh, language, either oratory or just simply written word, that define what Americanism really is, or at least American republicanism. Uh, anyway, Keith, did you have any others? No, those were the only two that I, I wrote down, and I was trying to think of some okay. offhand, and uh, and I can't. That's all right. Dad, did you have any others left? Ryan, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Miller, is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send another folded flag, American flag? Tell her, when you found me, I was here, and I was with the only brothers that I had left, and that there was no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand. There's no way I'm leaving this bridge. Ryan and Miller. What's that, sir? Miller, pulling Ryan closer. James, earn this. Earn it. Any others, Dad? Just kind of a chuckle, uh... Ryben, great. Now we have to surrender our socks. Uh, I only had one left. Sergeant Horvath, I don't know. Part of me thinks the kid's right. 
He asks what he's done to deserve this. He wants to stay here, fine. Let's leave him and go home. But then another part of me thinks, what if by some miracle we stay, then actually make it out of here? Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole awful goddamn mess. Like you said, Captain, maybe we do that. We all earn the right to go home. Dropping the title right in the middle of something like that and doing it in such a way that it actually has some meaning and profoundness. Did you have any others yet, Dad? No, uh, you, you can't go anything further than that one. All right. So if we're ready, let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Dad, uh, do you want to get us started? Ten. I'll just come right out and say ten. I think that there was a whole genre of films. Everything from the things that Ken Burns has done on World War II to Band of Brothers to the Pacific to so much that's been available now is based on how this film was done, the realism, the raw emotion, the lack of it being poetic and heroistic is uh, tied to this film. The legacy, I think, has permeated... What are we talking about? It's going to be almost 25 years here shortly 24 years 23 right now we're going to be working on 24 next summer and i think it still has a significant impact i would agree from the industry side of things and we often divide this category into two parts five and five between the industry and the audience because i do think that they're somewhat removed from each other that the interest and the fervor around this movie it reinstilled a certain re-examination of the historical part of World War II, that and uh, our increasing interest in the Holocaust that came from the other big Spielberg film of the 90s that he won his other Best Director film or Best Director Award for, uh, Schindler's List. So taken in uh, totality of the 90s, you can definitely point to this and say that from an industry standard and the amount of war films we've gotten after that uh, or after this movie to the amount of war films that look very similar or take their cues from this movie as to the subject matter, how they portray it, how they shoot it, etc. I'll give a five for the industry. But the audience, I do think that the subject is somewhat waning, maybe not to a, like a huge extent, but thinking close to what the fervor was when like we originally thought of the history channel as the Hitler channel before it went completely reality TV. I just don't see the level of interest as we've lost more and more veterans. And I don't know how many, if any uh, world war two veterans are even remaining at this point. I know we're completely out of world war one veterans. Uh, they died out sometime around when I was uh, in high school, but that I, I just don't see the attachment there as much because the market has become a little bit more oversaturated with war films. Whether we talk about um, some of the more modern ones that have to portray life like American Sniper or uh, The Hurt Locker, any of the ones that depict some of the more modern wars like Afghanistan or Iraq, or you want to talk about a lot of the Vietnam films that we've gotten subsequently that are more of a re-examination. I guess... Part of that has to uh, drive down 
um, the interest in trying to go back and redetermine World War II when we've had so much other material now developed on it. So I'm going to give it a 4.5 from the audience standpoint. I'll go with a 9.5 overall. Can I just make one comment? You certainly On may. Sunday this past week, I went to Barnes & Noble, which I try to do about every three or four months. And I just go through the new book section. There were not three. There were not five. There were seven new books on World War II in the nonfiction section. Uh, you know, maybe you gotta to a have certain an extent, audience to buy them. Well, <laughs> they're writing them and they're publishing them, and there there's a certain aspect of them being bought. Okay, but publishing costs less, and there's book sales are at a record low. I, I, I'm also going to argue that people publishing books on the subject is part of the industry as opposed to the actual audience receiving it yet. I, I do think that this is a movie that resonates with people and probably more people have seen this than some of the other recent films that we've had. I think if to a person, if we went and asked 30 people from a varying degree of different audiences, whether they've seen this movie or any of the movies from Alfred Hitchcock we just covered, that they'll more likely have seen this one than any of those. But I just don't know if we have the peak levels of World War II interest and fervor that we did. So among some people, certainly. I'm just saying that just by a small degree, and I'm, I'm nitpicking a little bit here to separate it from some of the other films that we've given at 10s to get to my 9.5. It's a small thing, but I'll just kind of make that degree change there. Keith, what did you have down? I didn't quite know what way to to rate it afraid when it comes to the legacy. I gave it a seven because of all the bad imitations that came after it. The thing with the legacy is it's kind of a lot of it is up to the interpretation of who saw it. And you know, a lot of people saw it as a as a fun action movie. And then therefore wanted to make fun action movies. And it took a lot of the camp that was in that one and, uh, and exaggerated a little bit and then made, made their own version of what they saw. And, and it wasn't good. And they almost felt like they had a license to, uh, to do it. Because, well, Saving Private Ryan was successful because it was a, a cool action movie. So we can have lots of guns and explosions and, and shooting and therefore, it's cool, whether people like it or not. But at the same time, you can't, you have to put it up towards the top because of, after the movie came out, people were talking about World War II in casual conversation that had never had before in their entire life. And all of a sudden, the sense of pride that they got in their family members that were there is anytime anybody would mention World War II in conversation, it was, uh, oh, you know, I got a, my, my dad or my grandpa or my uncle or my, uh, my cousin was, was in D-Day or he was here, he was there, so on and so forth. And uh, it, it reignited a conversation that was probably 50 years too late. So it's like, well, there's a lot, it has a lot of different legacies. I think that some of it's in the, the eye of the beholder. So you're going to stick with your seven then? 
I am, because I don't quite know what else to say. That's fine. I mean, it's a completely sub... Well, all of these categories have a certain level of subjectivity to them. Just for the standard that we've created, there are only two movies we've given straight 10s on the show so far. The Wizard of Oz and Jaws. So that would be where Dana and I are pretty close to having it. Some of the other movies that are kind of in the general vicinity... Raiders of the Lost Ark, Psycho, Casablanca, Back to the Future all have a 9.75. Then we had Jurassic Park at a 9.67, 9.5 for E.T., All the President's Men, 12 Angry Men, 7 Samurai, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Goldfinger, Alien, and Caddyshack. Now, as the average currently stands, we'd have an 8.83 with your 7 there. And that would drop it into categories surrounding films, somewhere in between Anchorman and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, just for reference sake. Uh, All right, Dad, uh, let's you lead off with uh, Impact Significance. This had such a buzz in the community and had such a buzz in the industry. This, again, to me is a 10. Yeah, I do remember uh, a lot of people talking about their experiences of seeing this for the first time in just random conversations that have come up 10, 15, 20 years after the fact of having seen this movie. I do think that it caused a stir, and it was the number one movie at the box office that year. It it was really kind of a huge cultural shakeup that it created. I mean, we talked about earlier in some of the notes Uh, the fervor that came with the History Channel basically turning into the World War II channel for uh, an extended period of time. The amount of documentaries, copycat movies, video games that all extended for this. And it wasn't even in that short five-year period that we normally attribute to this category. It had an extending legacy far beyond that. So for me, uh, I went with a 4.5 for each of these. I don't know if I would give it a straight five for both of them, just because I wasn't, even though I was there, I wasn't there. Like I was not conscious of a lot of these things. And did it have quite the same footprint that like a Titanic or a Jurassic Park quite had a, a Jaws when we're talking about the the straight tens that we've given up to this point? I'm just not sure that it's quite in that category, but it's damn close. So I'll go end up at a nine then. Keith, what did you have done? Uh, well, you know, I don't work in the industry, so I don't really know. But uh, I was going with, with fives for it. But, yeah, as far as legacy within the industry, so with, with, with Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg's involvement in this, also ropes in with, uh, with Stephen Ambrose. So fast forward not too many years when they're going to do Band of Brothers. The reason why they chose this movie is because this movie, like there was a paratrooper in the 101st named, uh, named Nylon who lost one brother in the Pacific who they, he was missing in action, presumed dead. He was actually a POW. And then he had two other brothers, both killed on D-Day. One uh, with the 82nd and another with, I think it was the 4th Infantry Division. And then he was the only surviving brother, and he was in the 101st and jumped into Normandy as well. He did not know that the two brothers had been killed that day, and uh, I don't know whether or not he knew about his other brother, so there were orders to take him out. 
it was like, hey, there's this guy. He had three brothers. All three of them are gone now. He's the only one left. He's on the 101st Airborne. He's somewhere in Normandy. We need to get him out. Now, they didn't have a hodgepodge of random people that they pulled off the beach because clearly they didn't need bodies for this upcoming battle to go send them out to go find this guy. They just got a hold of the unit. and They're like, hey, where is he? They're like, oh, he's over there. Okay, um, have him stand by. That's what actually happened. And then they, they did take him out, and they sent him back to the States, and he became an MP. But he was friends with two guys from the 506th Infantry Unit. So in conversation, Stephen Ambrose was brought in, met these guys, and was like, oh, these guys still get together. They have reunions. Oh, I can talk to multiple of them. I'm going to write a book about these guys. And the book was called Band of Brothers. And Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks both had heavy involvement in the making of that because they wanted to make sure that they did it correctly. And they knew that not only to get it done right, but to have some public interest in it, have those two doing it. So that had an impact on the industry because Saving Private Ryan set the standard. And then those the, that same group of people did a miniseries and then maintained the standard. In fact, improved upon it. So, and, and then when it comes to how the public perceives its legacy, I mean, we're, we're talking about it now. It's, it's kind of hard to, to find a guy in this country who hasn't seen it. And when you do find somebody who's seen it, it's hard to find somebody that doesn't have a lot of things to say about it. Cause, cause in the end it's, it's an epic that, makes you feel and, and, and tells a story. So that's why it's still a five for me. Out of curiosity, has your wife seen this? Yeah, I made her watch it. Okay. I wasn't sure, but just thought I'd throw that in there. Of course, I had to pause it every 10 minutes to tell her what was going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mary Poppins, this is not. Uh all right, so then that's a 9.67 for the average between us. Novelty, I think this has got to get high marks. Personally, it's a fictional story inside of a historical event. A lot of this was kind of created stuff for the purposes of doing a movie. And while I disagree somewhat with that choice, it takes a bit of balls to do that, and I got to give it a little bit of respect from that point of view. Also, outside of the Holocaust movies like Sophie's Choice and Schindler's List, this and The Thin Red Line are the first two major movies about World War II since I mentioned before, basically a bridge too far. At that point, we were getting more Vietnam films in the 80s and maybe early 90s than we were getting World War II. And they are said to have completely reinvented the war genre from something glorious or heroic into something much more vulnerable and consequential. For me, I would go with about a 9.5 for the amount of things that basically they created about the war genre that uh, has an effect on just about every move or war movie made after this. Uh, Dad, what did you have done? I actually had an 8.5. And the reason I gave it points down, this kind of came after this or uh, the whole re-exposure of World War II started. Because we had uh, Tom Brokaw's The Greatest Generation, and we had Stephen Ambrose had written several books already. And this kind of put 
what was already starting to be a reflection of that era into film. And actually, I think I've convinced myself, I'm going to go with a 9, in, in fact, instead of the 8.5, because it redefined films and how films look at it, but I don't think it was, like, on the forefront of starting to re-explore that generation, what they accomplished, and how World War II was examined, looked at, and perceived. Okay. Keith, what do you think? I, I went with a, with a nine as well, just because the movies that had made in the past, I, I, I think as some producer that wants to make some money, some, you know, short little guy in an ascot back in the 70s standing behind the desk with his big collar going, we're going to make a war picture. It's going to be fantastic. They're going to go out hunting for gold, and we're going to have like a chorus line in the background that just – repeats the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And and then they, they find the gold, but then they got to fight their way out. And there's, so it's like, oh, you're making a war picture. Okay, well, what are you going to do in this war picture that hasn't been done a million times that people are actually going to go see it? With this one, they came in and they were stoic, and they're like, we're going to make a war picture. And, oh, okay. Like, what? Like what? So... You had the 80s that happened when it was, hey, we're going to make a Vietnam movie. It's called Platoon. Like, oh, okay, who are the heroes? There aren't any. What? So with this, when they were like, we're going to make a war picture, they were serious about this. They said, uh, "There's everyone loses, but one side kind of wins. And uh, that's 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 kind of why I'm, I'm sticking with the nine on this because it uh, when when they were filming it and they were like they were putting the audio in it wasn't just oh we got to have some machine gun sounds in the background no it's we need to go get mg42s and mg34s those are the two german belt fed machine guns and we need to get accurate audio of those weapons and make sure they're timed in with what's going on so when somebody hears that that knows what an mg42 sounds like they don't need to see it. They can hear it. They know what it is. And, in fact, we're going to record at different points along the line so that when a firearm in the shot is 300 yards away, when somebody's watching it, it sounds like it's 300 yards away. We're not just taking a bunch of sound clips and inserting them in and having a cacophony of noise just for the sake of doing it. Okay, so that ends as a 9.17 average between the three of us. Classicness. Dad, this is your category. You may start. It was an accurate portrayal. It portrayed the way things really were, I believe. The only problem I have in this is that it, it, it's only an American perspective. There's no aspect of the Allies. There's not... I mean, uh, apparently the 2nd Ranger Division that Miller was involved with they were uh, brought ashore by British uh, merchant marines and landing craft. And, you know, you don't get that. So there were Canadians involved in that area. You know, the fact is, is this was a totally American effort, and it's only told from an American perspective, even though there were multiple other countries involved. So I had to give it a small reduction to a nine for that. 
So for you, it would have been more classic if somebody had said, we need to take care of those guns, eh? <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh, Keith, what did you have done? Kind of this, that, that's, that raises a really good point that I didn't even think about or mention. And the Coast Guard was even involved in this, which well, they were rather nerve-wracked about because it was the first time they had been in water over 30 feet deep. <laughs> and some of those craft too they were they were british craft and uh i i, I think that it yeah they could have interjected a lot more of that but at the same time with that american perspective you know it was for an american audience and i thought that maybe to a degree they didn't really think about it everybody just assumed that the coming off navy ships going into navy landing craft and then they're all Americans coming on shore on the American beach, because that was Omaha and Utah were the American beaches. You know, then you had Juno, Sword, and Gold that were taken care of by somebody else. And um, I do know that nowadays, if you go over to Normandy for their annual celebration, for the people that live there, it's it's a big deal. But even more so if you... If you go to Holland, like they like Americans there. And there's this there's this resurgence of, of appreciation for what the Americans came over and did. And I don't really know, but from what I've heard, it wasn't until this and Band of Brothers and a lot of those American-centric movies came out that reminded those people in a very realistic way because old war movies to that generation were old war movies. They were fun and you watch them to be entertained. This, this wasn't necessarily entertaining. It was shocking. And it did do well overseas where they got that, that nudge and that reminder of what the Americans did on their soil. And now there's, it's a big homecoming for the anniversary of market garden and the anniversary of D day over there. And you, you know, as an American, you can go to, a pub in Antwerp and they'll give you a beer because you're, you're an American. And, uh, one of the few places in the, in the world that are still like that. And you don't even have anything to do with it. You just came from that country and that automatically makes you cool. And until these movies came out, they didn't, it was in the past, I guess, to a degree. So what did you end up at score wise? I, I gave it I gave it an eight. Okay. I don't know why, but I did. So for me, classicness always starts at a seven, and I either work my way up or down based upon that. I really don't have any problems with this. I think, obviously, when we talk about period pieces before, we've talked about the benefit of hindsight in a way that you can examine a uh, subject in light of that, that usually you can step around most of the problematic parts. I would say that putting a historical fiction together does kind of open you up to a lot of inaccuracies or different things that both of you have already highlighted. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But from the amount of things that the rest of this cast went on to do, I mean, it's kind of a surprising list of people that were involved in this movie that you know from other things. Uh, I went through the cast list before, and I'm sure that if you didn't know the name necessarily, 
if you've seen this movie, you were probably pointing to something. I've seen that guy in something. And that's all over this cast list. There is more of a realism that I think classically we would say is become the defining part of war movies as a result of this. Again, I don't want to borrow too much from the novelty in that aspect, but I do want to bring it in or incorporate it that classically. We would say that if this now redefines what the genre is, that that ages well. So where I do quibble is somewhat of the same historical accuracy issues that you guys have. The need to place a historical fiction within a broad category like World War II and put this in here. Yes, you can maybe dramatize something a little bit more and making a historical fiction does make it easier to put on a a dramatic side of this that's more cinematic than something that if you were just borrowing like a, a historical documentary, which sometimes I find to be too formulaic in their execution anymore. I kind of balance that out here and there. I'm going to make somewhat of a compromise with myself and go with an eight as well. So the average on that becomes an 8.33 and we go to rewatchability. Keith, since this is a movie that we did uh, specifically to incorporate you, uh, why don't you start us off for this? I do a nine just because there's so many things that happen in the movie. There's so many different scenes. There's so many different environments. There's so many different kinds of conflict. There's, there's so many arcs and so many highs and lows that even if there are parts that, because you've seen the movie so many times, I, I watch it every year because it's one of my favorite movies, uh, and I get the parts that are a little too campy or a little boring or whatever, because in the end it is a movie. I know it's not going to last long, and the entire dynamic of it is going to change. So e even if you just hold out for the exciting parts, you're still able to sit there and, and, and re-watch it in its, in its entirety. So somebody who has no interest in the subject matter, even though it is fiction, can still watch it and re-watch it and re-watch it because they're going to grab the bits and parts that resonate with them. There's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah, there is. Dad, what did you have? I thought a lot about this, as you are aware, on my birthday or my birthday weekend, I usually try and take a day and I sit and watch a bunch of films that I really enjoy. I think this is one of those films that I'm probably going to add to the list because every time I rewatch it, I think more of it and go, why have I not watched this more often? Sure, I, I, I always talk about, you know, you got to be in the right frame of mind and all that. You know, it's not something I'm going to, like a day-to-day a -day that was, or a day like today that was a little more stressful for me that I'm going to go, oh, you know, I've had a really bad day, so let's watch Saving Private Ryan. But for the most part, so I, I'm going to go with a, a nine, simply because I think this needs to be on my list of things I need to watch at least on a yearly basis. 
Okay, and that's noted. So for me, I'm going to go with an 8. It's not the easiest thing to watch, as you mentioned. It's not like light or humorous that I think could be more universally watched no matter what's going on in the rest of my life. You still have to come in with a little bit of an appreciation, a somberness in order to pick this up. My my viewing changes depending on what the mood is that I'm, I'm watching this in. And yet, for being a two-hour and 45-minute war film, it's with the noted graphic violence, military realism, and the rest of it, this isn't really that hard to watch. It's something that goes pretty quickly. There isn't too much downturn. I don't think the movie's slow at any one point in time. Spielberg's usually pretty good about being able to string enough action together that even in the low moments, they're very fleeting. So as there just breaks in the action enough that um, you don't lose attention, but you also don't cause people to completely get out of the film because it's just too intense for them for a prolonged period of time. So for me, this is going to end up being an eight just from the standpoint that it's rewatchable. It's easier to watch than some other war films that at times can be slow and monotonous and formulaic, but it's not going to be something that I'm going to necessarily go back to uh, a ton for what we normally depict in this category as the comfort food section of things. So then for audience score, this was both a 95 on Google and Rotten Tomatoes for an easy 9.5 score. No, I didn't need help on the math. Just to recap then, we have an 8.83 for Legacy, a 9.67 for Impact Significance, 9.17 for Novelty, an 8.33 for Classicness, an 8.67 for Rewatchability, and a 9.5 for Audience, leaving us a total of... 54.17, and that will currently place it inside of our top 10 at number 3, beating out another Steven Spielberg movie at the moment, uh, just above Raiders of the Lost Ark and below 12 Angry Men and Jaws. Hmm. All right, so we turn our attention then to uh, remaining questions. I really only have one, and I didn't think I would have any for a while, and then it kind of came back around to me because... I wasn't able to film, finish the film right away. I kind of watched it in pieces in, in between the rest of my life going on right now. But should the platoon have shot Steamboat Willie? You're looking for an answer? Not necessarily. I think it's remaining questions. It doesn't necessarily require an answer. I think a lot of people would have different feelings on it. I think even within the same, what, uh, hour of the film, Upham comes to a completely different answer? Yes. Remaining questions for either of you. I have one that I have to ask Keith. Which was easier, three tours of Iraq or living with my daughter? Oh, Iraq. Because you didn't... There was just, you know... Every day was just every day. It was kind of life and death. And you pop open whatever MRE got thrown to you that day. And you look at it and hey, I got M&M's this time, or uh, I got one of the vegetarian ones, so all the snacks will be good, but whatever. And then you may or may not have gone to the store and bought a whole bunch of, or or uh, swung by uh, some big chow hall and got a whole bunch of energy drinks. And that, 
you're it's kind of like it was kind of like a dog day where whatever happens throughout the day there's highs and lows and things to look forward to like dinner time we're going outside and that's like your whole life dad you're giving him the option between essentially momentary fleeting times of pure hell versus a permanent purgatory Uh, well i i yeah well (laughs) i mean the only when you asked for permission to marry her the only reason i said yes was i figured three tours of iraq you'll at least be able to live with her yeah i I can tell you which one of the two is more profitable (laughs) uh yes and i can say this is because one she won't listen to the show and two I'm so used to having her eyes roll back into her head every time I say stuff like this that it really wasn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she she might listen to this one. I don't know. I don't think she's listened to but, you know, the, even the one that she was a part of. No, she, she hasn't. But unlike Saving Private Ryan, which is over two hours of, of constant action and an emotional ebb and flow... This is this is two hours of just three people talking, and I don't know if she can make it through that. Well, if she does listen, I'll just say, well, I still love you, Boomer, regardless of what you think. All right. Well, uh, that looks like as good a place as any to kind of cut the conversation here. Keith, uh, thank you very much for participating in this. We enjoyed having you on. Uh, we'll look for some other opportunities to have you back. You are our resident person if we get to go, or not if, when we get to Ghostbusters. So eventually we'll we'll cover that. But uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dad, any remaining thoughts for the week? Uh, no, looking forward to uh, plowing through over the next few weeks, uh, getting to the end of the season. Yeah, I know that we've advertised a few uh, favorites coming up of at least the, some of the ones that I grew up with. So next week is Shrek. The following week we have The Matrix. Then I think it is uh, The Terminator before we get to our Christmas set. So then we did, or I think we have upcoming uh, Love Actually, Die Hard, and It's a Wonderful Life. Just some. Uh, is that all we have left for the season is five? Six. I named six. Okay. Wow. Years gone by quickly. Well, that'll be, I think, uh, nine, or 46 episodes. Mm. So, yeah, it's uh, gone by. Yeah. And there's a lot of things coming out, too. There's the sequel to Saving Private Ryan, which I don't know if we should have saved until further on down the line right before that comes out, but... It's it starts in 1946 and he gets a job at a at a Ford dealership, and then basically nothing happens for 60 years and then he dies. I, I think that's a documentary. <laughs> Sounds like a Stephen King novel. <laughs> anyway, don't close the dishwasher with your foot. What are you doing? Why why are you hiding in the garage all the time? Are you ever going to take out the garbage or am I just going to have to do everything? And then he has flashbacks to uh, parachuting into Normandy going, God, I wish I was back there. 
Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we are covering our second animated movie of the show for its 20th anniversary this year, Shrek. Starring Mike Myers, Cameron Diaz, Eddie Murphy, and John Lithgow. You won't want to miss that one, so please watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at gmodepodcast or Twitter at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.